It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Parents have had a lot to worry about during COVID, whether to get their children vaccinated, send them to school, masked or unmasked. Those worries for parents can turn into a laundry list of conflicts for separated or divorced parents to fight about. Joining me is Lois Lieberman, a partner in the matrimonial and family law practice at Blank Rome. I want to start with vaccinations because it is such a big issue, such a political issue. How often does it come up in custody fights? Well, before COVID occurred, the time that we would see vaccinations come up is when a parent became nervous thinking their child might be more prone to autism by virtue of vaccinations. Those were few and far between, but those occurred every once in a while. And and we would get into a situation if the school requires a child to be vaccinated and the child was going to go to that school. Ultimately, the court would usually, unless a pediatrician was going to come in to give some medical evidence as to why that child may be more prone or there was some evidence regarding the same, the court, if involved, would give the one parent medical decision-making authority over that, quote, decision. We had some other custodial sites regarding religious exemptions. But those changed a bit when it became, I think there was a change in the public health law, which again, the schools were requiring and were not agreeing to this religious exemption. But COVID has opened up a whole new kind of hotbed of discussion with respect to vaccinating young children. So let's start with the basic. The mother, let's say the mother, the mother wants the child to be vaccinated. The father doesn't want the child to be vaccinated. Does a court usually get involved in that? And what kind of factors does the judge weigh? If the court gets involved, they're looking at the best interest of the child. That's what's supposed 
to be the basis upon the court's decision. And if mom wants to get the child vaccinated and dad doesn't, the court is going to want to delve into what's the reasoning behind dad not wanting the child to be vaccinated. So if we talk about COVID, most recently there was a decision in December that Judge Dollinger in Monroe County rendered. And this was a father who was a scientist, somebody who was a professor at Rochester Institute of Technology, who was vaccinated himself. His older daughters were vaccinated. And all he wanted to do was to wait a bit, since he was concerned about his 11-year-old daughter being vaccinated, wanted to see a bit more data. In that particular decision, the court made a determination that that the CDC was recommending that the child should be vaccinated. And therefore, there was no point of waiting and that it was in the best interest of the child to become vaccinated and therefore gave the mom the decision-making authority to make that important decision for the child's health, safety, and welfare. Do these decisions vary based on whether you're in a blue state where, you know, vaccination rates are high and there's less political pressure to be unvaccinated or in a red state where vaccination rates are low? You know, that's a very interesting question, June. I've seen decisions in Chicago. I've seen decisions in L.A. with respect to this. So I can't tell you that in like West Virginia or in, you know, Texas, whether or not this conflict, whether the judges are getting involved more, you know, as a political measure, because clearly you can see that there is a feeling that this, this obviously decision is kind of politicized, what to a certain extent you're kind of recognizing from the language in the decisions that the courts are going kind of beyond, well, I'm just following what the CDC says, that many jurists are getting kind of on their soapbox a bit to talk about the greater good or the need for us to all be able to commit to getting vaccinated to blow back this pandemic, so to speak. But it's a really good question. So I can't tell you whether or not in the red states are we seeing a difference of opinion with respect to this conflict. Let's talk about the situation where the vaccinated parent wants to stop visitation with the unvaccinated parent. How does that work? So what we're seeing is that the court is limiting and sometimes suspending the unvaccinated parent's parental access under the guise of saying they are protecting the child's health, safety, and welfare. In the Chicago case, the jurist went so far as to say that parent had to be vaccinated. Yet in New York, we've seen decisions where while the judge's language may have been a little bit more political, they basically said, you can see the kid if you take a test. Even if you don't want to get vaccinated, you need to take a negative COVID test to show that you are not going to potentially harm this child, especially when you're dealing with cases where the children are younger than the recommended vaccination status. So in this case in, again, New York County, Judge Cooper, the child was three, obviously couldn't be vaccinated and gave the mother the right to limit the father's access, providing that unless he got vaccinated or submitted to a negative test. It is a difficult situation for parents because this is a new vaccine. I mean, the the measles, mumps, rubella, you already know 
but this is new. So I can imagine that a lot of parents do have trepidation about getting their child vaccinated. And I think that's where we almost have gotten caught up in the wave of politicism, because normally with a kind of a new vaccine, a parent who wanted to wait or to get a little bit more data and to kind of sift through the, the, the noise of what people were saying would potentially take a little a bit more of a beat before making the decision to get their child vaccinated. But interestingly enough, by virtue of the fact that the CDC has made this recommendation because the school, because there have been such a surge of children who became sick, especially in the Omicron uh, variant in recent vintage in September, there seems to be more of a, you know, an urgency that the court is feeling that, no, it's the parent who said, get the child vaccinated. And if the other parent says no or wants to wait, I'm going to let the parent who wants to get their child vaccinated, I'm going to let them make the decision. I take it when we had COVID lockdown, there were there were a lot more problems. What other kinds of problems about custody came up or about schooling? Wow, we had quite a bit. So let's let's start. So first, you had just the issue of schooling, right? It, especially in uh, New York County, where I practice, and there's a lot of children who are in private school, there was the choice. Certain schools gave choices whether or not your child wanted to go remote or go in person. So we had issues between parents as to whether or not they wanted their kid to be in school or, or taking the classes remote, maybe because of the nervousness, maybe because of the concern that the child may have some sort of underlying uh, health issue. The next issue had to do with just where the child, if they went remote, right, where the kids took their remote classes, right? Were they all in their houses, you know, their vacation homes, or they were somewhere different, and whether or not that impacted the other parents' parental access, because if they were doing, you know, an every other day or every, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday schedule, and one parent is in the city and the other parent is in, you know, the Hamptons, that wasn't going to work kind of situation, Gosh, we had issues with respect to just allowing kids to travel. I know of one case where, like, whether or not they could fly private or fly commercially and what kind of precautions need to, needed to be taken. We had issues of whether or not parents didn't want to give children over to the other parents because they didn't think that they were following protocols. I mean, sadly, COVID truly was like a hotbed of issues that arose from that. When you have parents who don't, uh, you know, agree, it, it provided a, a whole host of issues for uh, parents to fight about and then for have judges to get involved in. How often do judges get involved in these kinds of decisions, which seem like they should be able to be solved between the parents? So a really good question, June. I mean, again, I can't tell you statistically, but unfortunately, when you have custodial you know, issues where a court has to make a determination as to really which parent is better suited to make a decision. Normally, you don't have the kind of significant issues that arise. It's usually, well, who's going to make the best decision about where the kid goes to school and who's going to make a determination as to what kind of extracurricular activities. Very often prior to COVID, the most significant medical issue we really dealt with when it came to having jurists having to intervene was if prescriptions about ADHD or whether a child actually had those problems and how to uh, address them, right? Very often, it was not uncommon if you had one parent who said, you know, my kid doesn't need to be medicated. And another parent saying, well, you know, the school is recommending, the psychiatrist is recommending, why not? And then courts had to get involved. But it would seem that it, it almost during 
this period of the last two years, it, it's almost as if people's anxieties have gotten even greater. And there seems to be even more situations where parties cannot agree and judges have to get involved in some way, which has been problematic because the court system has kind of been broken and, and really been so overloaded by virtue of the problems that COVID has caused. So a lot of parents have been in kind of no-win situations where either, you know, they haven't been able to get the attention for for some period of time. Courts, unless it was an emergency, you couldn't come in. And the question was, what was an emergency? So, um, and we're kind of still dealing with the ramifications, the backload of all this. But, you know, now the custodial issues are the first ones that are out of really getting attention. So it depends, you know, so the question now is in the vaccination world, I think you're seeing a lot of litigation in all sorts of states. But really, if one was making a guess, most of the jurists are going to pick and say, if the CDC, if the uh, FDA has approved that vaccine, I'm going to tell the parent who wants to get the child vaccinated that they are entitled to do so, unless I get some medical professional who's going to provide me a reason why that child shouldn't be vaccinated. Let's switch to today's Valentine's Day. Does this mean there are a lot of engagements and are more people getting prenups than in the past? Well, for sure. What we've seen, June, during the, this lockdown is that if there were fissures in a relationship, it definitely caused, you know, major uh, upheaval. But those who were stuck together, who really liked to end up being together, you, we've seen a great you know, influx of engagement and prenups. So we're definitely in prenup season, usually around Valentine's Day. This is another uh, surge, so to speak, of times when we see engagements and therefore we see a lot of prenups. I don't know if there's more prenups now than there has been, but we do a great deal of, um, of, of prenups. And those who have you know, assets or if they've been in a relationship previously that broke up and divorced, it's clear that people are doing a lot of them. We have a great influx of, of, of prenups right now in the last few weeks. And I'm sure as of after today, we're going to have even more. I mean, how much does it cost to get a prenup if you have, I'm not talking about, you know, the mega millions, but the mm-hmm. average person? Again, another great question, not trying to be evasive, but lawyers are animals of time, right? We all bill, you know, per six-minute increment. So if somebody takes a lot of time, they're calling us a great deal. We're basically doing therapy before the, the wedding. Prenups that should be simple are costing, you know, ungodly sums because we're spending a lot of time. Those who just want to make things simple, like what I come into the marriage with, what I inherit or am gifted by my family or that comes from trust distributions, those are going to be separate and everything else, you know, is going to be marital or, you know, we'll deal with it based upon the law, shouldn't cost a lot of money. It's just that, as you know, especially in my world, there's a lot of emotions that are layered in these decisions and in these negotiations. So it's not just so simple most of the time. And sometimes it takes a little bit more time to kind of flush out the issues and therefore cost a little bit more than one would have hoped. Thanks, Lois. That's Lois Lieberman of Blank Rome. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The U.S. Senate delivered a major legislative victory for the Me Too movement, passing a bill in a bipartisan voice vote that will end forced arbitration at companies for victims of sexual assault or harassment. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York was one of the early sponsors of the bill. No longer will survivors of sexual assault or harassment in the workplace come forward and be told that they are legally forbidden to sue their employer because somewhere buried in their employment contracts was this forced arbitration clause. The measure frees victims of workplace sexual harassment or assault to pursue lawsuits in court. Joining me is Anthony Ansidi, co-chair of the Labor and Employment Law Department at Proskauer. Describe for us the kinds of arbitration clauses that are often in employees' contracts. They're sometimes referred to as pre-dispute arbitration provisions. And what that means is that they are documents that are usually given to employees and sometimes even applicants before they've begun employment. And essentially what they say is that if any sort of dispute arises or any claims arise, that is, if an employee has a claim against an employer or an employer has a claim against the employee, they both agree in advance that they will not go to court and that instead they will have their issue or claim resolved by an independent arbitrator, usually from one of the well-known alternate dispute resolution entities. And there are three or four of them that are extremely well-known. So now what does this new act do? So this new act that came out rather suddenly, I don't think there was a lot of warning. Uh, It passed the House and then almost instantaneously passed the Senate. And uh, President Biden has already indicated that he will sign it. This act would essentially prohibit any such agreements that is, pre-dispute arbitration agreements that involve either sexual harassment or sexual assault in any of the states. So it's a federal law that will 
essentially lift all of those types of claims, that is sexual harassment and sexual assault claims, from arbitration and um, put them into court at the option of the employee, by the way. It's not automatically done. It's something the employee will have the option to do. It was a bipartisan bill. It passed with a voice vote in the Senate. The sponsors of the bill say that it's important because workers are vulnerable and the disparity of power. And if you have arbitration, it's secretive. It's not in an open courtroom. You can't appeal the decision. So they say this is a really good thing for workers. That's true. I have a little bit more of a cynical view of of that point of view, not necessarily from the people in Congress who voted for it, but from the plaintiff side lawyers who advocate laws like this. What they rarely say, but which they all are really quite aware of, is that juries tend to be more sympathetic to employees, full stop, regardless of what the claim is. And juries tend to give higher awards to employees than do arbitrators. And because of that, many, most, maybe all plaintiff lawyers would prefer their cases to be heard by juries because they believe they're more likely to get a higher award. What about the you know allegations that arbitration clauses are in fine print in legal clauses which employees aren't even aware of? So when they're signing, they don't know what they're signing. I think there's something to that. Uh, they're, they're sometimes referred to in the law as adhesion contracts, meaning that they are rarely negotiated. They're rarely specifically called out by the employer. There's usually very little, if any, discussion about them. But I would also point out that the next time you go to the dentist, the next time you go to your doctor, the next time you go and park in many facilities in parking structures around the country, you will find that if you have a dispute with any or all of those entities, you also have waived your right to go to trial with a jury and you will end up in arbitration. I would especially uh, point that out with respect to medical providers. I probably signed dozens of these um, arbitration provisions, as has everybody listening to this program. And uh, there also has been no discussion about that. There's been no dis- there's been no attempt to uh, repeal those. And, and all the same reasons apply. Doctors don't want to be brought in front of juries, and they would rather, and hospitals the same, they would rather not have to defend claims uh, like uh, those that arise, malpractice claims, for example, in front of juries. They'd rather be in front of arbitrators. So let me ask you this. As, as far as this bill... Do you think that it will lead to more litigation, more settlements, higher settlements? What do you think the effect of it will be? If you define litigation as court litigation, then the answer would be yes. I think that what this essentially means is that employees with sexual harassment and sexual assault claims, uh, and I I believe, fortunately, sexual assault claims are still relatively uh, rare. Uh, they do occur, but it, sexual harassment claims are really quite frequently filed. Um, those will no longer be before an arbitrator, and that means that they will be filed. That doesn't mean that each and every one of them will go to trial. Many of them 
will, as your question suggests, end up getting settled. But importantly, because the case is pending uh, in court or is threatened to be filed in court and cannot be sent to arbitration, the settlement values will go up significantly. Uh, I can tell you that many, many forms of litigation go through a process known as mediation, which is a again, a voluntary process that the parties go through, usually with a retired judge or a retired practitioner, and they try to settle the case. If the mediator knows that there's an arbitration provision that is likely to be enforced, the case is usually settled for less money than if there is no mediation provision, because once again, the threat of a jury is uh, such that any potential award is going to be probably a lot higher. It's also a lot more expensive to defend a case on the part of the employer if it's pending in court, as opposed to in arbitration, where things tend to be more streamlined and uh, there's less process typically. So from all you've said, it sounds like advocates for workers would say, yay, this is going to be to their benefit. Oh, yes. This is Valhalla for them. It's actually partial Valhalla. I'll tell you what they really want. And I suspect now that this has happened, it may not be far from uh, materializing. They want to have arbitration go away with respect, not just to sexual harassment and sexual assault claims. They want it to go away entirely with respect to all employment-related claims. And uh, I hesitate to make the, the famous slippery slope argument, but I think it truly does apply in this situation because what this legislation does is it, it suggests that there's something wrong with arbitration, that somehow arbitration is inferior, at least with respect to the employee's rights, to what the employee could expect in a court proceeding. So now what Congress has done has said, if you are sexually harassed, you no longer have to go to arbitration. You can go to court and you can have your day in court, as Senator Graham said, and many of the supporters said. What does Congress say to those employees who were harassed on the basis of their race? What does Congress say to those employees who were harassed on the basis of their age, or their disability, or their sexual orientation? Does Congress say they don't deserve their day in court also? Because there's really no principled way to distinguish between a harassment that comes under the rubric of sexual harassment and harassment of any other form, all of which are equally abhorrent and all of which are equally illegal. So if Congress has decided to uh, alleviate employees who are sexually harassed from the obligation to go to arbitration, it's one short stop away from saying, well, actually, no one now who is claiming any form of illegal harassment under Title VII, for example, or the state equivalent, must go to arbitration, and everyone can go to court. That, by the way, has been the path that most of the private companies that have gone down this road have taken. They started out after the Harvey Weinstein headlines with sexual harassment and soon realized there was no principled way of distinguishing between sexual harassment and other forms of illegal harassment, and then opened the floodgates and said, we will no longer enforce arbitration agreements with respect to any form of illegal harassment. Well, from what I understand, language was changed so that 
for example, discrimination would be eliminated so that the focus would only be on a sexual assault and harassment. So that was perhaps the reason why it got a voice vote in the Senate. Yes, I, you're, you're correct about that. But harassment is different from, from discrimination. So there are two further stops, I guess, down this line. One is the one I just mentioned, which is other forms of illegal harassment. Those are not included in this bill, and those still are subject to arbitration. Beyond that are forms of discrimination. But you can have discrimination based upon sex. You can have discrimination based upon race. You can have discrimination based on age, disability, sexual orientation. All of those are illegal also, and all of those remain subject to arbitration. It's a very difficult argument to make certainly with respect to different forms of harassment, but even between harassment and discrimination, to say why some should be permitted to go to court and others must go uh, to arbitration. It's also unclear what courts are going to do with the following scenario. What happens when an employee uh, claims, for example, that she has been sexually harassed and also harassed on the basis of her race? Which claims go to court? Which claims go to arbitration, or are they split? Do some of the claims go to court and some go to arbitration? It sounds like that's probably what would happen. The employer could compel arbitration with respect to the race harassment claims, but not with respect to the sexual harassment claims, even if it's the same employee, even if it's the same harasser, even if it's the same employer. So, I don't know if you agree with me, it seems like the Me Too movement is the reason why this bill went through at this particular time. I absolutely agree. I I think that is true. And the the concern I have about this is, is, and I'm certainly sympathetic to the Me Too movement and and the many horrendous stories that we've heard and, and lawsuits that have been filed. What we're saying here, however, is that if there is a differentiation between different forms of harassment based upon the Me Too movement, I guess that's a, a way of distinguishing. But from a legal standpoint, from a principle standpoint, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and, and Congress has now gone down the road of suggesting there's, as I said before, something wrong with arbitration. And if there's something wrong with arbitration with respect to Me Too harassment claims, then there should perhaps be analysis done as to whether there's something wrong with arbitration in other forms of employment harassment and discrimination. This precisely is the plaintiff's point of view. They are saying there is something wrong with arbitration and it should be junked entirely. That's, that is what the plaintiff's bar would tell you. Now, the, the reason that I think the employers, on the other hand, are mostly concerned about initiatives like this have to do with um, jurisdictions like the one most near and dear to me, California. We have had within the last 90 days two gargantuan single plaintiff verdicts in the state of California that um, makes many people's heads spin. Uh, One came in December, and it was a verdict in favor of an employee who claimed that he was a whistleblower. This was against farmer's insurance. And a jury in Los Angeles County awarded that employee 100 and $55 million, $155 million to a single employee. Before that, in October, in a federal court in San Francisco, 
one employee who claimed racial harassment was awarded $137 million against Tesla. If any, all, or some employees who are terminated or harassed can get amounts of money from juries that get close to a fifth of a billion dollars per employee, the system will collapse. And it's verdicts like that and, and many other verdicts of the, that are in the 10, 20, 30, and $50 million range that happen on a regular basis that are causing employers to look for some solution. The solution that has come most frequently and, and that is adopted is arbitration. Those days may soon be numbered for arbitration in any of these claims. Is there any role for the Supreme Court at all? The only thing the U.S. Supreme Court can do uh, is determine whether a statute like this is violative of the U.S. Constitution. And I don't think that the Supreme Court would, would find that to be the case. Uh, what The Supreme Court has been very active in interpreting anti-arbitration statutes, but almost all of them have been at the state level. The states all over the country, again, including California and New York and several other states, have been trying to do this for a very long time, not just with respect to sexual harassment and sexual assault, but with respect to all forms of employment-related claims. Each and every time, for the most part, that has happened, those claims get to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, aha, state law must fall because it conflicts with a federal statute, which is over 100 years old, called the Federal Arbitration Act. What this new law does is it changes federal law. And so those challenges that have been successful in the Supreme Court will no longer be successful in the Supreme Court because now federal law has changed in a way that state legislatures around the country have been trying to change it for at least the last decade. Thanks, Tony. That's Anthony Onsidi of Proskauer. Former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores has accused the National Football League of pervasive racial bias, claiming discrimination denied him the top job at the New York Giants. Flores filed a proposed class action against the league, naming the Giants, Dolphins, and Denver Broncos as co-defendants. Joining me is Siddhartha Rao, a partner at Romano Law. This is not your typical, I was fired due to racial discrimination lawsuit. Tell us how it goes way beyond that. So there are a couple of things that I found kind of interesting about this lawsuit. The fact that it's filed as a class action obviously creates pressure on the NFL and the league to address this issue in a broader way than an individualized claim, like maybe the Kaepernick settlement. Class actions obviously put settlement pressure on defendants, but maintaining a class action also means threading that needle of Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and meeting all the requirements of the class action. And so when you're talking about a class action claim as opposed to you know just an individualized claim, you really, the anatomy of the case is a little bit different. Um, the plaintiff here, Mr. Flores, is going to have to overcome a class certification hurdle before the claim really sort of uh, is off to the races. So what that means is that the court's going to be evaluating whether this pleading uh, and the the evidence that sometimes sometimes there's even some evidence adduced at the class certification stage, whether that will be enough to meet the requirements of Rule 23. And just keeping in mind the purpose of the class action is to remedy sort of pervasive problems that may be more efficiently dealt with at the class level as opposed to on individual claims basis. Uh, and it's, it's why you see a lot of product liability class, tort class, and of course, discrimination um, 
class action. So just right off the bat, I think the class action clearly is is a message. <laughs> it's a way to send a message. And if I may just echo that point with another point, which I think is very much related. This complaint, as I read it, is clearly intended for a larger audience than just the court or even, frankly, the opposing counsel who may be considering their responses anywhere from litigation to settlement. So several features about the complaint are striking. I mean, number one, it's filed on the first day of Black History Month. It begins with quotes from Martin Luther King. The very first paragraph has a recitation of civil rights figures going back to the 19th century, the 1800s. And the rhetoric of the complaint is clearly pitched at a sort of public discussion of race. What is he alleging in his lawsuit? What are the allegations he's making? Fundamentally, he's alleging a pervasive discrimination on the basis of race as to employment opportunities in the NFL. If we look at the numbers, he's pointing out that 70% of the players are black, but currently of the 32 league teams, only one head coach is African-American or black, and that there is a pervasive kind of discriminatory environment that prevents black candidates from being hired for head coaching positions, general manager positions, and the like. Ultimately, what the complaint's purpose, as I read it, is, is to support that allegation by really digging into the culture of the NFL and trying to present a narrative that supports this conclusion that there really is a discrimination on the basis of race that is creating an artificial ceiling for for potential black candidates for coaching positions. Let's say it goes to trial. Mm -hmm. How far does he get to that just by the numbers alone? It's really interesting. There, There's actually two aspects of the complaint. There's the, the aspects personal to, to Mr. Flores, right? So he says that he was called in for a, a coaching interview with the Giants, but by accidental disclosure, he found out three days before the interview that a white candidate had already been selected and that it was a sham interview. Um, this is even more significant because the NFL has committed since 2003 to something called the Rooney Rule, which requires the interviewing of an ethnic minority candidate for any head coaching position and as amended actually requires considering two candidates. Uh, and I think the idea was that if they sort of make the process more inclusive, the results would be uh, more inclusivity in the coaching positions, but that hasn't happened. So that's where the complaint is personal to Flores, but where he's hitting more broadly is on the statistics. You know, the point that 70% of the players are black is not lost. And there's very striking imagery in the complaint about the NFL being essentially a plantation where it's supported by African-American labor, but not adequate representation in the coaching and ownership areas. So I think that that presentation is certainly very dramatic. And from a legal point, it's also somewhat required. So typically in an employment discrimination case, a plaintiff is required to go first to the EEOC or in New York to the Division of Human Rights to file an agency claim. It's part of what's called the exhaustion of remedies doctrine, and federal courts simply don't entertain filings until the plaintiff has shown compliance with that exhaustion of remedies. That is, they've gone to the agency. You know, under fairly recent Supreme Court precedent, a defendant can defend a claim simply by saying plaintiff failed to go to the EEOC. So what immediately jumped out at me reading the complaint is that Flores says that he will go to the EEOC and the DHR, but has not yet done so. Why I think that has happened is he's bringing his claim under Section 1981 and not under Title VII. And Section 1981 is is a purely uh, it's a statute purely dealing with racial discrimination, going back to 1866 and the civil rights laws of the 19th century. 
um, as opposed to the broader scope of Title VII, which encompasses race, uh, gender, you know, ethnic, national origin, and the like. So right out of the bat, he's pled a claim that confers jurisdiction in the federal court, does not require an administrative proceeding, and is using that essentially to generate supplemental jurisdiction on the state, state discrimination claims. It's an interesting pleading strategy. It allows him, I think, to file the complaint in federal court before approaching the agencies um, and obtaining what's called a right to sue letter. It creates, I think, from a timing perspective, is very, um, very intentional. Uh, again, it's Black History Month. The Super Bowl is approaching. It, it creates a sort of public lens and a public scrutiny of the NFL that I think is very strategic here as a litigation um, perspective. And then, you know, essentially in parallel, while his class certification uh, um, determination is pending, he can approach the agencies and, and escalate ultimately to a Title uh, a Title Seven claim, which he would, he could, I think, could easily amend his pleading to include once he obtains the right to sue. So it's a very unusual way of pleading this claim. But how do you force individual teams within an organization to hire minorities? It's a really good question. So, so two aspects here. One is procedural. The Flores complaint does uh, name several league teams and also states that, you know, with further discovery, he may name essentially every team in the league. So essentially there's John Doe defendants. So he's, he's holding open the possibility of expanding his um, defendant list to include all of the league teams. But to answer your question more substantively, this goes back to that 1981 Title VII issue I raised earlier, which is in a Section 1981 claim, a but-for causation requirement, you need to be able to prove as a plaintiff that the adverse action would not have occurred but for your race. Whereas in the alternative claims, Title VII, you can look at disparate impact. And that's ultimately, I think, where the Flores suit will go after he files with the EEOC and the DHRs is to use this disparate impact data to infer that the policies and procedures of the NFL are discriminatory. Now, under the, the Walmart decision, the Supreme Court issued uh, was a Scalia decision, and, and it denied class certification of something like 1.5 million women. There is a problem with that strategy. You still have to identify a policy or practice that results in the disparate impact. You can't simply say that there's disparate impact, ipso facto, there's discrimination. I think that we're really getting to standards of proof. And, and from a, again, from a technical point of view, I do believe that Flores will be amending his complaint to include um, claims where the evidence can be, be a little bit more inferential and circumstantial rather than a strict but-for causation analysis. But your question is very, very perceptive because obviously we're dealing with a league that consists of multiple teams with many owners. And that's where the evidence of culture becomes really important of a sort of pervasive culture of discrimination. And that is, I think, why the complaint spends so much time discussing what might appear to be ancillary issues about uh, prejudices and, and the tolerance of prejudice at the management level. He says the interviews were sham interviews. How do you prove that? Sure. Well, ordinarily you can't without discovery, right? So what's really fascinating about this case, what's kind of extraordinary is that Flory's got a text from Bill Belichick basically saying, congratulations, you got the job. But it was meant, to, it was meant for an, uh, the other recipient. It was not meant for Flores. It was meant for the white candidate who ultimately was hired. And what's 
fairly extraordinary about that text is that Flores receives it three days before his actual interview. So his evidence, um, which really he puts right at the top of his complaint before he even gets into the paragraph, he quotes this text from Bill Belichick, and he says that Belichick basically let the cat out of the bag, that he was being called in for an interview when the organization had already um, had already settled on Brian uh, Tabal, not Brian Flores. So that's that's really striking. Normally, you wouldn't see that kind of documentary evidence at the pleading stage of the case. You would see that coming out in discovery. But here, um, the plaintiff actually has has essentially a written admission. Let's talk about this allegation that the owner of the Dolphins offered him $100,000 a game for each loss. How does that fit into this complaint about the league? Yeah, you know, it's it's a fairly interesting point. Um, number one, there was this explanation given for Flores' firing from the Dolphins that he was sort of uncooperative or that there were issues between him and and management. And that explanation was given in part because um, he performed well uh, as a coach, the Dolphins. And so part of his allegation really is to give uh, more color into what really happened. And what he's saying is that I refuse to um, essentially tank games to optimize our draft position. And because of that, I was punished. Now, it seems a little bit ancillary to the um, uh, it certainly seems a little bit ancillary to the claim, but it does get to several other issues, which one, it, I think it's an attempt to rebut the Dolphins' position that he was terminated due to some kind of intrapersonal issue or inability to work with, um, with owners and management. I, I think that's really where that's getting at. But number two, obviously it raises a whole host of other issues. Um, in terms of, you know, the NFL has, has tie-ins and deals with DraftKings and several other sports betting sites. And if, if there's a pattern or if there's some allegation that owners are trying to tank games for, for draft optimization, it certainly affects the betting markets. And I, I think that there's other issues that are totally ancillary to the complaint. But really what it does is it completely uh, casts a new light on his termination from the Dolphins. This seems to be way, way larger than just, as you've mentioned, a termination. You know, you, you fired me wrongfully lawsuit. I 100% agree with that. I think that this lawsuit, when you when you consider what they're actually asking for at the end of the day in terms of their relief, this is not your typical employment discrimination claim where a plaintiff is seeking back pay and, and you know, wages and compensation. This complaint is seeking sweeping relief in terms of systemic change at the NFL. And I, just as a litigator, when I read this complaint, what I see is a complaint that is as much pitched to the federal court as it is to the public. And I may be going a little bit out on the limb here, but I think win or lose, the point of this litigation was simply to make the point. And when you examine how this complaint is really kind of a walkthrough of the history of the NFL going back. You know, there's references to, to Plessy versus Ferguson, the 1896 Supreme Court case. There's references to um, the first black players in the league. It's clear that what this complaint is trying to do is not just adjudicate an employment dispute between Flores and a team. 
it's really trying to put the NFL under the lens and say that we need systemic change. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with the plaintiff or disagree. I'm just saying that is what the complaint is saying that that explains so much of this complaint, why it is pled as a class action, you know, and why it takes the rhetorical pitch that it does. And also the timing of the filing and the, and the technicalities of the pleading, all of it is consistent with the same general point, which is that this is a case about change. It's a case, I think, motivated more by a desire to write some historic injustice and the principle rather than a typical employment dispute, which may have some of that, but it's also usually on a, painted on a much smaller canvas and is focused on compensation and, and, and a more simpler remedy for the plaintiff. Might the NFL file a motion to dismiss here? I suspect the league is going to be thinking more about class certification, frankly, than um, a motion to dismiss, although who's to say they, they may move to dismiss. But I suspect they're going to be attacking the idea that you could certify a class here. And you know, just speculating, I, they might try to produce evidence or create a narrative that even if you could somehow identify a class, that the individual's claims would be so different and rest on such a different pattern of facts that it would be inefficient to adjudicate under Rule 23 class action. And that probably takes some of the wind out of the sails of this case. I certainly think that Flores has made a point, you know, in terms of the media spotlight that he's put on his case and the, what he's alleging is a more pervasive pattern of discrimination here. That will need to be dealt with some fashion by the NFL, simply, frankly, to contain reputational damage. This is really a referendum on, you know, a, a history of segregation and a history of prejudice, and that this specific incident with Flores, they don't want it viewed in isolation. I also think they're responding to this but-for causation problem that the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court clarified that the standard on a 1981 claim is you have to show that race is the cause, that there isn't, you know, that but-for your race, you would have been hired or you wouldn't have suffered some adverse action. So it's a fairly high threshold, um, and I think that's why they're bringing some ammunition to the table on this. Thanks for being on the show. That's Siddhartha Rao, a partner at Romano Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.